We thank you for your word, which we can rely on due to its inerrancy, its infallibility, its assuredness. We thank you for the witnesses of those that have come before us. And as we read of how you have used ransomed lives, we pray that you use ours for your glory and yours alone, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome. Welcome online. Thank you, Steve and the worship team. I'm glad that you didn't stay standing for the whole sermon reading, but rather the sermon text reading, because it would be a long day. It would be back to old school in Jerusalem otherwise. So here we are at the end of the longest narrative of Jesus's interaction with a woman in the entire Bible. And if you open your Bibles, we originally, you will notice that the original schedule had three more verses, which I have now moved and punted to use a football term to Dwayne next week. And he has graciously accepted those uh, because they fit better with that narrative that we will enter into next week. Have you ever noticed that in stormy weather, birds act differently? So often when a big storm is coming, birds will change their flight patterns. For sailors at sea, they know a storm is coming based on birds alone, interestingly enough. They can see birds hovering in a different pattern, flying erratically and actually moving towards their boats trepidatiously. They will sometimes hover, stories go, near the mast of a boat and they will encircle it and encircle it and they will stay up in the air as long as they possibly can. One story from a traveler tells on one occasion when a little lark had followed a ship for a considerable distance and was at last compelled through the sheer weariness to land. He was so worn out that he was easily caught, and the warmth of the hand, in this case, that caught him was so agreeable that he tucked his little body down and was so worn out, sat it down, buried his little cold feet into his feathers, and looked with a trustful look to the traveler. This is a touching picture of what it is for a soul who is aroused by the Spirit of God and blown out of its own reckoning by the winds of conviction for sins. And the warm reception which this little bird received, in our case, is the hands of the only Savior, Jesus Christ. The weary little bird in John 4, 1 through 42 is the Samaritan woman. But there's more little birds that are coming out soon and many more will be comforted by the hands of the Savior and assured. We too here this morning and online are like that little lark. We flutter around in our sins and in our lives. And then something happens. 
The storm comes, the Savior calls, the Spirit draws, and we change our flight pattern, not because of our perception of our lives, but because of the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here we enter into the final four verses of the Samaritan woman. And remember last week, do you remember what happened? So Jesus, to recap, for those that weren't here, approaches this woman at a well. She is unapproachable. Why? He is the rabbi. He is the Messiah. He is Jewish. She is Samaritan. She is a woman. And she's an outcast. Complete opposites. This doesn't happen. And Jesus comes up to her at the well and says to her, what? I'd like a drink From whose container? From hers. Jesus, you recall, after telling her about her past, she does what? She decides to leave her water jug there. Now, some have speculated it's a big water jug, and that's why she left it. It's not what I believe. I think she was so compelled so immediately compelled with what she had just heard that now she had known that the Messiah was in front of her that she turned about and she went forthwith, hitherto, right to the town of Sychar where she came from and she approaches the men. Now, I don't know if you caught that detail in this story. Normally, women didn't come and approach men. The men were at the gate. So typically, when the men in the daytime, what would happen is they would assemble around the gate and they would congregate to talk about the business around the town. And this woman comes back right to town, finds the men, and she tells them what just happened to her. Here's the big idea. Belief comes from hearing the words concerning Christ. It's in your bulletins. It's in your outlines. Therefore... Believers are compelled to share the good news of Jesus. Two points. Never happened in my time preaching with you yet. Probably will never happen again. This text does not have three points. It has two. It's her word and his word. Her word in verse 39, his word in verses 40 to 42. Her word, verse 39. Look to God's word, please. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is why does his revelation of her background equal him being the Messiah? Good question. Glad you asked. The Samaritans believed in the Pentateuch, but had a corrupted understanding of the Pentateuch. Samaritan religion, because it accepted only a corrupted form of the first five books of Moses, which is the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, did not have a fully developed idea of the Messiah as the descendant of David. One commentary says this, however, that does not mean the Samaritans lacked messianic expectations. Drawing from a passage in Deuteronomy 18.15, here's what God's word says. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet 
like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. The Samaritans looked for a Messiah who would serve primarily as a prophet and restore the authentic religion of the Samaritans to God's people. And they called him Tahab. So the Samaritans had a truncated idea of the Messiah and the, and the Messiah was based on the Pentateuch alone. Which is why they accepted the Samaritans as Samaritans and some other information about Messiah. In other words, what does that mean? When she heard information that he had about him, about her, that only it would come through divine revelation immediately in the Samaritan villages, in the Samaritan minds, that would have meant, ah, a sign that the Messiah is here. And because of his knowledge, they said that when the Messiah comes, he will teach us everything. Knowledge is what marked their messianic idea. So after she was told that only the Messiah could know this, she left her water pot, turned to tell of Jesus Christ. That's the background. To whom does she go tell the news to? This is one of the most important parts of this narrative for us. You have to understand, in this culture, what time of day did she go to the well? Noon. Thank you for paying attention in the previous four sermons. <laughs> Noon. When did they usually go to get the water? Evening or early morning. She was ostracized. She was outcast. She was shunned. And where does she go as soon as she hears of the Messiah? Right back to the very same people that have treated her with contempt and scorn and shame. Because she knows that they need to hear the news that she was just told. Her belief compels her not to run to her favorite two or three people that treated her nicely, but to the men in the city and if anybody would have treated her with shame and contempt and scorn, having five husbands living with a man that was not currently her husband, an adulteress, it was the men of Sychar. And yet, here she goes, and she goes right back to them like an arrow, and immediately something happens that is a shocking truth to this story. Look to verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, pause. Whoa, what does that tell you? They believed her word. Do you catch that? So the easy thing that would have happened in this culture in this day would have been outcast woman, five husbands, living with a man, adulteress, shame, scorn, contempt, dismissal. But what do they do? They believe now, this is not, now normally, and we're going to get to this in terms of the tenses of verbs in the book of John, I'm going to propose to you that their belief that comes from this is genuine. And I think her belief was genuine too. And you'll understand why later. To whom does she go tell? She cannot hold in this good news. So why is this so important to us today? I think this is a playbook for us here, Church of the Canyons, online, to what it looks like once we're converted, 
Once we believe in Jesus Christ, we go and we tell others that we care about. We tell others that we're concerned about. We tell others that maybe have treated us with contempt and scorn and shame because we cannot hold in the good news. We know something that others must know. For generations before the coming of Christ, the Samaritans have been separated from the covenant people of God because of this peculiar, corrupted religious understanding. And all of that belief is about to change. When does it change? The day the Samaritan woman talks with Jesus Christ at the well of Sychar. As we have seen, Jesus reveals his messianic identity to the woman. Do you remember what happened? Go back in your Bibles. Look to verse, what, 26? Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Clear messianic identification. Jesus has now told not Nicodemus, not at night, not the teacher, not the Jew, not the rabbis, not the Pharisees, not his disciples, but he has now told the Samaritan woman, the outcast, with clear precision that I am the Messiah, the one that you are waiting for, the one that your town, by the way, doesn't get, the one that your Samaritan village, the Sychar, are expecting, but you got it wrong. Guess what? I am still he. So our misunderstanding does not change the understanding of who Jesus Christ is. They had, bless you, So in verse 39, the Samaritans re-enter the narrative. Originally, they believed, go back to verse 29. Why did they believe? Look at verse 29. Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now, you could easily read that and say, is she questioning the identification of Christ? I think that's wrong. I actually think what's happening here is she is showing respect to the people she's going in front of. She is going in front of, the, the, the again, in this culture, the women were not trained all the way up in reading the Pentateuch. They were not schooled. This was a culture where they would not have been teaching the men about God's word. So she respectfully comes and tells them immediately, but then poses this as a question, is he? Is this it? Now, that's highly respectful. In other words, come and see. Come and see. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. This woman's bold testimony was a stark contrast from a woman that was a social outcast. Here, she is talking about the Messiah. The Samaritan woman's word about the divine identity of Jesus Christ underline big, red, bold, contributed to the belief of many. But it was not the causation of the belief of many. Her words were critical in the process of the divine mystery of God. One plants, one waters, but it is the Lord that causes growth. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. That's okay. Samaritan's woman testimony And your testimony and my testimony in no way causes the growth of dead to life. But 
God used her to contribute underlying score to the Samaritan village of Sychar. Isn't that fascinating? See, he could have shown up. I want you to think about this. Calibrate your brains on this thought. The disciples, how many of them went to the village? All of them. Could Jesus have gone? Could Jesus have gone? Of course. Could he have spread the word about who he was to the village? Of course. So why does he use this woman at the well? Great question. See, I think it's a model for all of us, is it not? Oh, Lord, use our ransom life in any way you choose. Every one of us, we're no better than that woman at the well. And when we were lost, he found us. We're the little larks. We're flying over the ocean, looking for a safe place to land, fearful. Maybe even some of us, in fact, most of us, dying without ever finding But here we see the Lord alone welcoming sinners into his company. How do I prove that by scripture? It's not my words. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Were we partly alive? Dead in our transgressions. Made us alive together. With Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Anybody, anybody, stop, full stop. Anybody that thinks they contributed one iota to their saving faith is wrong. Any church that ever teaches that in any way your good works in any way contribute to your saving faith, it's wrong. Many heresies, many fallacies, many errancies come out of a misunderstanding of our contribution to our saving faith. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. When we were dead in our transgression and in our uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us in all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of our debt consisting of the decrees against us. What must we learn from this example? Church of the Canyons. What must we learn? Our testimony of Jesus Christ works in the process, but in no way generates saving faith. But our testimonies are not themselves the word preached. So why don't we just talk about Christ? Why do we do this Sunday by Sunday? Why do we do the regular teaching and the pattern of the word and the preaching of the word? More to come. Keep that thought in your mind. D.A. Carson, I referenced last week, says this, for the witness of the ordinary human beings is never despised. That means this, friends. Your witness matters. Do I understand why? Not a clue. Do I think you and I should contribute anything towards the process of anyone's faith? Absolutely not, based on who I am, a sinner saved by grace. And yet, God uses you. And so, belief comes from hearing the words concerning Christ. Therefore, believers are compelled to share the good news. This outcast Samaritan woman, 
shared her testimony concerning Jesus Christ, and they believed. How do we know that's true? Jesus did not despise her because of her sordid past, but offered her living water, John 4.10, which equals salvation. The same offer exists today, so lost, so burdened ones, so outcast, so sin-stained ones in our church this morning, come and drink. There's nothing you're bringing in to this church this morning which is beyond the offer of the saving grace of Christ. Don't play around with church. Don't play with God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you do this, you may join the song that we just sung and the lyrics may have a whole new meaning. Listen to the lyrics to what we just sang. Maybe you heard the song, maybe you just sang it. Yeah, that's nice, that sounds good. Listen to the words carefully. I once was lost in darkest night, yet, yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. Does that remind you of the Samaritan woman? Do you think she wanted to get into a pattern of five divorces and living with another man? I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. But now I know all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. This woman didn't know that a cross was coming. But she knew the Messiah was in front of her. Jesus told her story and she concluded this, the knowledge that only Messiah could come. So she goes to the village. She says, look, I just met a man who told me everything. Everything that could have ever known. Is this the Messiah? And what happens? The whole village comes out. By the way, think for a second of how different that is in Jerusalem, in the Jewish villages. In Galilee. See, typically, when Jesus and the disciples went into a Jewish area, what would happen? They'd have to leave town. Here, the whole village comes out. It's amazing. And what do they do? This time, though, it's not because of her word, but because the additional believers come to faith through his word, point two. Verses 40 to 42. And the Samaritans came out to Jesus, looked to God's word. They were asking him to stay with them. Don't you love that little detail? They were asking him to stay. See, it was no longer. They, they came out because of her words, her testimony, her statements about this Messiah. And now they come to him and this is the right thing to do. They come to Jesus and say, we want to know more. Come with us. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm busy. 
thanks, it's nice, I have an hour for you. What does he do? Look to verse 40 again. And he stayed there two days. Can you imagine those two days? Seriously, just picture for a second, two days with Jesus, all this misunderstanding, and all of a sudden you're with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, for two full days. And what does God's word teach us? Look to verse 41. Many more believed because of his word. Now you could easily misunderstand this text. You could easily look at verse 41 and verse 39, which both come from the aorist term, which is past tense, and say the reason that they believed in Jesus Christ was only because of Jesus Christ. In other words, you could say all of the saving faith is in verse 42 that's coming, that's in the present tense. Typically in the book of John, when we talk about saving faith, it is in the present tense. But there are unique circumstances where we see it in the past tense. And I believe this is the case. So let me explain to you what I mean. Normally saving faith, once again, is from the present tense indicative. And I won't bore you with the grammatical details except to say this. It comes from the underlying Greek word pastuomen. But what we see here twice in verse 39 and in verse 41 is epistumen or epistusen, which I believe based on this context that the initial belief in 39, go back to 39, from that city, many Samaritans believed in him because of her word. Do you catch what I'm saying? I believe that some came to faith through her word. Obviously, everybody that comes to faith is by the grace of God, by God alone, by him causing all growth. But I believe he has used her words, her testimony as part of their narrative. And verse 41 Many more believed because of what? His word. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say to you. I don't think that, they, that there's two different or one person that goes, yeah, I believed here, but then I now really believe here. No, I don't think that's what's happening. I think there's a group of people that believe based on her testimony by the grace of God alone. And there's a separate group of people that believe based on his word. In aggregate, many believed because of their words collectively, but it's always because of the word. Do you see what I'm saying? I know it's nuanced, but I think it's significant. And why I think it's significant is I think it then adds marching orders to us, not to say it's all about him and nothing about us. I think we'd be mistaken to read that in the text. Jesus' words produces many more believers Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word concerning of Christ. From Jesus, the Samaritans learned that he is the savior of the world. Look to verse 42, the final verse that we'll address this morning. And many were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. 
Again, to be clear, her belief comes from her conversation with Christ. A group of people, I believe, believe partly because of her testimony, which is shored up once they spent two days with Jesus. And a whole other group of people believe because of his word. Now, who caused saving faith? So if this is a test, so you now have just read three verses which you could easily mishandle if you're not careful. So who caused saving faith? God alone. But her words were used as part of their testimony. It does not say in verse 42, it is no longer any relevant what she said. No, 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 no. It says it is no longer because of what she said that we believe for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. The last little line in this part of 42 is critical we catch. So why is the savior of the world, this title, so rich in the first century? Let me give you some context and a bit of a history lesson. The ancient Greeks referred to their gods as saviors. And the Romans applied the title to the emperors. Have you seen that in old movies or movies that depict it? Such claims and like others are declared false when Jesus is proclaimed as the savior of the world. In proclaiming Jesus as the savior of the world, we are claiming that he is the only possible avenue of salvation for sinners and that he is ultimately the fulfillment of the promise of God of Israel. The one true creator to save both Jew and Gentile. Remember how this story started. Where did he start? Jerusalem. Where was he going? Galilee. Where did he choose to go through? Samaria. And do you remember it said that he had to go through Samaria? Did he? There are three avenues, one up the east, one up the west, one through the middle, and traditionally Jews did not go through Samaria. So did he have to go to Samaria? Yes, he did. It was a divine mission to find the woman at the well, to be in Sychar for two days, and for many who were lost to come to faith in Christ. So yes, he did. But no, he didn't. You get, you understand what I mean? God's will will be done. God, Jesus is the savior, not of one nationality. You see what's just happened. He's come out and now faith has come to the village of the Samaritans in Sychar, and the kingdom is expanding beyond what? The Jews. To offer the possibility of salvation apart from Christ is a lie and is a false hope. Genuine hope is found through genuine faith, but false hope derives from false teachers and false teaching. That secure little lark that flew over amid the blowing storm is us who are in Christ. Any other claim for saving faith, the ship goes down and they go to hell apart from God forever. Once saved, 
We land in the hands of the Father through faith in Christ. We're no longer children. What does it say in Ephesians? Listen to the words in Ephesians. We're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. How do you tell the difference between a mature Christian and a newer Christian? The amount they question everything. New Christians question everything. Immature Christians question everything. Mature Christians realize that God's in charge of everything and sovereign. And we're no longer blown about and tossed to and fro by false doctrines, false teachers. How many times in Corinthians and Ephesians are there warnings? Keep away, keep away, keep away. Does that warning mean that we can be lost? I'm intentionally pausing because I want to see your eyes. If you think for one second that you can be taken out of the hands of God, you have a vast misunderstanding of who God is. You are secure in your faith if it's real. Genuine faith is enduring faith. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. He has now reconciled you, Colossians 1, 22 to 23, the fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless. Listen to this. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away in the hope of the gospel that you have heard, you will not be taken out of the hands of the Father. You will not be snatched from Christ. The Spirit will never leave you, nor it will always remain and indwell in you. That promise you need to cling to because the storms are coming. They will come to America. They will come to this church. They will come to your life. They will come to the hospital room. They will come to your family. But you will not be taken. Not all who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, 21. How do you reconcile that then? They weren't ever in the kingdom of heaven. You see the difference? Take care, brethren, that you may not be of an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Hebrews 3, 12. Warning, encouragement. Warning, encouragement. It's like storm clouds on the horizon and a meteorological report saying, caution, keep away, don't play near there. Don't go near. Weeks ago, don't understand it, new to this area. Waves are high. What do people do? Go to the beach. Why? I mean, I don't get it, right? Right? So they go to Ventura, a wave comes over, and I watch a video of people being blown into, like, bike, a biker by the beach. What are they thinking? The waves are high when you go one inch from this word. Anybody that starts to stand in judgment over it has the wrong order of the judgment. God's word stands above you. You don't stand above it. 
If you don't understand it, it's your lack of understanding. It's not because this is wrong. We see it left and right. People, it's like slopes. They start to question. What do they question? The beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. I want to learn more about this. I don't understand this. I need to compute this. Therefore, to believe this wrong, you're never going to understand it all. Guess what? God is God. Jesus is Jesus. He was the Messiah at the well, whether or not she understood it or not. But he opened her eyes to see it. We hear so many times, and let me put a caution to this church family. If you ever hear these words, close these ears. I have a word from the Lord. Close your ears. Don't do it. I have 776,000 words from the Lord. It's called the New American Standard Bible. doesn't matter what your version is. That's the word from the Lord. It's closed. It's a canon. That's what you use for truth. That's what you use for counsel. That's what you use for life. That's what you use for correction, for reproof, for godliness. That is what we use. Not how you feel, what someone said to you, Does it make you feel good? No. This is what you use for everything in this world. Today, we're not looking for a word from the Lord. We're looking for the 757,439 divinely inspired words to be preached without apology from this pulpit. So press on, believers. Belief comes from hearing the words concerning Christ. Friends, guard what you put into your minds. I have conversations in this lobby and sometimes during the week and sometimes online, and I hear some things that are going into some of the minds of our church, and I need to exhort you, careful what you put in. The book of Acts warns of this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not to spare the flock, And from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. These are not true disciples because if they were, what? They could not be snatched from the hand. But caution, friends, what you put in your minds. Younger people, you think it's cool to put stuff in and conflate it and have God plus it's either God or not God. There is no hybrid. That's called syncretism. So guard what you put in your minds. Guard what you put in your podcast. Guard what you watch with your eyes. It will influence you. Take comfort, believers. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the hand of the Father. I and the Father are one. John 10, 28 to 30. We'll get there one day. Lord willing. <laughs> working for the Lord and doing good works. Hey, good works are not contributing to your salvation, but they're evidence of your salvation. Ephesians 2.10. We are created for good works, so do them. Finally, share the good news of Jesus Christ. We speak, we spend time with that which we love. If you were to sit with some of the people in this room and online and around the here and talk about which team in the Super Bowl is going to win, which I don't even, I think I know the four that it's down to, right? There's some that are going to know every stat about everything. 
They spend a lot of time on this, right? How much time are we spending with God? Put your cookies on the right shelf for eternity is in front of us. Spend the time where it matters most. There was a man in the 19th century in India by the name of Bad, Bab Pam Padmanji. He was one of the early native converts in India. Listen to his words. Oh, how I long for my bed, not that I might sleep. I lie awake often long, but to hold sweet communion with my God. What shall I render unto him for all his revelation and gifts to me? Were there no historical evidence of the truth of Christianity? Were there no well-established miracles that I should believe that the religion propagated by the fishermen of Galilee is divine? The holy joys it brings to me must be from heaven. Do I write this boastingly? No, nay. It is with tears of humble gratitude that I tell you of the goodness of the Lord. How do we at the church want to put this into motion to support you? Seven ways, seven months. Here we go. So we want to talk about Jesus. We want to share about Jesus. We want to proclaim Jesus. And we want to help you in that effort. So here are the seven. We are about to launch outreach efforts in the following areas. Good Friday at 7 p.m. Jeremy will be preaching, Lord willing. Resurrection Sunday at 10 a.m. I'll be preaching, Lord willing. Women's spring tea at 10 a.m. Dawn will be speaking, always, Lord willing. And I believe her focus from the talk that she will give is in the book of Psalms. And I'll tell you, you're going to be blessed by that. So come, bring a friend. Invite a non-Christian to church that needs to hear God's word. VBS Celebration Sunday, June 23rd. More to come on this. The service that we will be doing from this pulpit will tie into the little minds and the little hearts through the previous days and will dovetail. And we want all of the parents and all of the grandparents here to see what the kids have been learning. And so we're going to work toward that end and pray toward that end. Sunday under the Oaks, three Sunday nights. First one, Chip, I believe that's your first official sermon devotional, which I look forward to eagerly. Seven services hosted by this church in the next six and a half months. If we build it, they will come. No. If we pray, God will bless it. See the difference? That's how the world thinks. If you build something, it'll turn into good results. Wrong. We need to pray for the lost. We need to be burdened for the lost. We need to understand that the sovereignty of God means that we are low and he is high. We are small and he is big. And therefore, nothing that we plan should be before coming to him in prayer. Belief comes from hearing the words concerning Christ. Therefore, believers are compelled to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's do it. With joyful hearts, not begrudgingly, not because I say so, because God's word tells you so. But let's do it in a way that matches the enthusiasm of the woman leaving her jar, her pot at the well. Let's pray. 
Lord, the end of that song that we had just sung continues. And the words continue. Now, Lord, may we be yours alone and live so that all might see. Oh, Father, use our ransom lives in any way you choose. Oh, Father, use our ransom lives in any way you choose. And let our song forever be that our only boast is in you. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. May Jesus be our life. And all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen.